Welcome to Quest, where we believe a great faith, great church experience, and great life is grounded in authentic relationship with God and living life with friends. Join us today in changing our world one friendship at a time. If you would like more information about connecting at Quest, stay tuned after the message. My daughter had me listen to a Billie Eilish song called Lovely. The song came out a few years ago, and it just has a mere 1.5 billion hits on YouTube. Not million, billion hits on YouTube. It's a beautiful song, yet even Billie Eilish says, she says it this way. She says, it is a really freaking depressing song. That's what she said. Not my words, that's her words. It's a duet of two people drowning in sadness and depression, resigned to the fact that they're stuck and they know no way out. Here's some of the lyrics. It says, isn't it lovely all alone? Heart made of glass, my mind of stone. Tear me to pieces, skin to bone. Hello, welcome home. I mean, depressing, right? This song stands out to me as it reflects the mood of many outside the church and even some within the church in America today. The New York Times said we're in a cultural moment of languishing, a deep malaise that saps our energy and gives us an an underlying feeling that not all is well. Things are shaken up economically, environmentally, relationally, and perhaps personally, and social norms keep edging further and further towards secularism. There's this growing indifference toward Christianity, especially among millennials and Gen Z. I actually heard a a Christian university professor sharing about how many of his former uh, students reach out to him a few years after graduating, and they say they're no longer a Christian. And, and that's disheartening to hear, but the reason these younger ones are letting go of their faith is kind of disturbing. One of them explained it this way. They said, I can't for the life of me think of one good reason to believe in Christianity anymore, even or even God. It has become entirely irrelevant to my life. So what this guy discovered and what other studies are discovering is that rather than an intentional choice being made of being won over by a reasoned argument to secular thinking, maybe listening to a Darwin or a Nietzsche or a Marx or somebody else, there's just this drifting happening. We go out and we get in culture and we just sort of drift. They step into a world where Christianity seems unnecessary, irrelevant, even obsolete. And I don't think this drifting is just among young people. I think it has affected our entire culture. And and it's a serious challenge all around us because of the serious challenges of our world around us. Now, in response to this despair as a church... We could be relentlessly upbeat and positive about everything. We could give messages on three ways to have the perfect happy life and the seven steps to a successful life. But that kind of pumped up message doesn't seem to have touched the depths of our culture and the souls of our people and and bringing the needed change to be resilient followers of Jesus. I mean, that message has been used by far too many churches in America for far too long, and people are rejecting it because it doesn't align with reality. Do you feel the moment we're in, in our culture today? There's a longing for honesty, to face our fears. 
And honestly, I think God is doing something new. I have a ton of hope. I have a ton of expectation for the future. And since God has some really great moments for the Christian church in our country. But I just don't know, and I don't know if anybody knows exactly what that will look like in the next few years. So the message today is that God will be our hope. He will be our wisdom. He's going to be our provider. He's going to be our stabilizer no matter what we go through. Our world is in a moment when we need God to come in the power of the Holy Spirit on his church, and it is critical for us to rediscover what it really means to be the church and to rediscover and revisit what it really means to have authentic, genuine faith. See, what we know is God works best in reality, not when we try to cover things up or put a perky bow on something that is not okay. Thus, our new series that we're going to talk about for the next number of weeks is called Resilient Under Pressure. We're going to explore how the early church navigated issues that in many ways are like the ones we face. The early church did not begin in an easy season, and yet they grew. The early followers of Jesus were incredibly resilient. And what I mean by resilient is not that we never experience difficult times, and it's certainly not that we just pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps and work harder. Resilience is similar to what I heard a doctor say about a heart stress recently. Uh, while taking a stress test, one guy asked the doctor, are you testing me to see how far, fast I can run and how far I can run? And the doctor said, no, just keep running. And the guy's heart rate continued to increase, and then gradually they slowed things down, and it decreased again, and finally the test was over. And one of the things the doctor was really measuring was how quickly his body recovered. That's resilience. It's about living life and then bouncing back and recovering and recalibrating. As Christians, it's about how do we recalibrate back to our true north? How do we return to being grounded in God? It's about returning to an increased awareness of the presence of God with us. And that makes all the difference in the world. For us as Christians, resilience is a work of God's loving grace as we turn to him again and again and we let his spirit breathe life into us when we are worn out and tired again and again and again. It isn't about how far we can run or how fast we can run or what we can do. Resilience is what sustains us for the long haul of to, to, to know that Jesus loves us and to really, really, really get that deep down in us and live out of that place. Last week on Easter, we left, the, left with Peter at the post-resurrection encounter with Jesus where Jesus leaned into Peter and restored him from his failure and betrayal. Jesus stepped into that gap of who Peter really was and who he wanted to be and who God created him to be. And we're going to be continuing looking at that theme, how God continues to step into that gap for all of his followers, including us. How God can help us be resilient and fill that gap so you and I can get from who we are now to who we want to be, the best version of who God created us to be. So let's jump into the specific focus for today this way. Let's remember for a moment how rocked the world was for the followers of Jesus by Jesus' death and his resurrection. Their reality was they didn't expect Jesus to become the Messiah, not in the way he did, 
And amid all the uncertainty, they were just 12 ordinary people trying to make a difference in the world. And Peter, the one Jesus identified as the leader, had just denied Jesus three times. Do you think the rest of the disciples had any confidence in Peter's leadership ability at that moment? None at all. They also had one of their core betray Jesus and their cause. The Bible doesn't airbrush anything out, not even Judas. In so many ways, this group was set up to fail because there was so much trauma, so much disappointment, so much human failure in their ranks. And yet, God's glory shows up in that kind of a reality, and he still does today. These individuals were vulnerable and dependent. They were not in, not in power in the way they thought they were. They didn't have any power. Despite the fragility of these early believers, we see Christianity taking off. I mean, Rodney Stark, one of the foremost experts on the early church, estimated the Christian population at the time of the resurrection was about 1,000 individuals. And in 300 years, it became 60 million. That's a growth rate of 40% every decade. One takeaway from the last couple of years, I think, for all of us is the realization that we are not really in control. Really, we're not. Reality is not controllable. We are not that powerful. Really, reality shows us our weakness. Yet just like these disciples, we too have an invitation, even a, a command from God to follow him in such a deeper way, to learn to be dependent on him, the one who does have the power. And that's the only way forward for all of us. After Jesus was resurrected, Luke tells us Jesus kept appearing to his disciples for another 40 days. And Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 15 that he appeared to more than 500 people. All these times, Jesus kept showing up and proving over and over again that he was alive and overwhelming them with the proof to believe that he really is alive. And then Luke writes, on one occasion while he was eating with them, he gave them this command, do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift that my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with the water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. And then they gathered around him and asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, it's not for you to know the times or dates of the Father has set by his own authority. It's not for you to be in control. But you will receive the power of the Holy Spirit when it comes on you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And after this, he said, he was, taken, he was taken up from their eyes and the cloud hid him from their sight. The ascension wasn't Jesus just going to sit idly by the throne of God at the right hand of the Father. Jesus on Calvary crushed the head of Satan and he launched an offensive. And that offensive by the kingdom of God continues today because in G it says Jesus always lives to intercede for us. We see this offensive at Pentecost when God pours out his Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is where we get our ability to be resilient and we get where we get the power that fills that gap between who we are and who we're supposed to be. So let's read this text again. I know we've read it a lot, but we're going to go deeper into it today. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of, of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. 
All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. So let's take a moment and examine some key symbolism of this text that helps us expand the depth and purpose of what God did in Jesus when he sent the Holy Spirit. We see several key parallels between what God did with the Israelites years before and in this day of birthing the church at Pentecost. So 1,200 years prior in the Exodus, God had already at that time planned a more full and perfect redemption and a covenant with his people that is now coming to pass in Acts. Pentecost is the Greek name for one of the three great uh, Jewish feasts where Jews from all over the world came. Pentecost means 50. Why? Because it's 50 days after the Passover, one of the other great feasts. This was primarily originally a harvest celebration until the Jews determined the timing of the Pentecost feast should coincide with giving Moses the law, the Ten Commandments. So let's look at that. After leaving Egypt, the Jews are in the wilderness for 40 days, at which time they stop for several days. And Moses goes up to Mount Sinai to meet with God and receive the tablets of stone written by the finger of God, revealing the covenant God made with his people in the Ten Commandments. So, again, if you know the story, when Moses went to Mount Sinai, the people were scared. Why? Because there was thunder and lightning and thick clouds and what sounded like a loud trumpet blast at the presence of God on the mountain. And they wanted Moses to go up for them because they were scared to go close to God. So... The text says, both in the Old Testament, and Paul draws on this in the New Testament, Moses became a mediator between God and the people. Moses got the word of God. He brought it down to them. But while waiting for Moses to return, the Israelites turned their backs on God and sinned grievously, making idols. And yet Moses, when he got back down, did what? He interceded for them before God. The Bible makes clear the parallel of Moses being a mediator and Jesus being a mediator. Moses interceded for the people, and Jesus went way beyond that. He died on the cross for our sins, making a permanent way for us to be in relationship with God, and Jesus continues to intercede for us even now to this very day. For each and every one of you, Jesus is interceding on your behalf. Instead of celebrating God, giving his law tablets on the stone like God did for the Israelites, we see in, in, in the Pentecost the fulfillment of Jeremiah's prophecy, which says this, This is the covenant I will make with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. Pentecost is about relaunching the people of God. The Holy Spirit is writing the law on our hearts. Similar to Mount Sinai, on this day of Pentecost, there is also a violent wind and fire. Tongues of fire land on each person. In the Old Testament, when God's glory shows up, it shows up in fire. He appears to Moses in what? A burning bush. He leads the Israelites to the wilderness with what? A pillar of fire. And when Moses is on Mount Sinai, God shows himself in fire and smoke. And at Pentecost, the tongues of fire were on each person. Like every believer, became a burning bush of God's glory in the presence. The glory of God on each and every person. It wasn't just on the leaders like Peter and John. The fire rested on everyone. It means that the Holy Spirit is for every one of us who have chosen to follow Jesus as Lord, as the leader of our lives. And we, too, hold the very presence of God in us. We, too, become a burning bush of the presence of God. 
Now, it's vital to note that Acts describes the blowing violent wind from heaven that fills the whole earth, as some, has, fills the whole temple and the whole house as something that comes from outside of them. It's not an internal psychological experience. They all heard it. They all felt it. And the Bible says it came from heaven. The Spirit does not come from within us. It is an outside power, the presence of God that comes to live within us from God as a gift from God. And this actually challenges so many of the beliefs of our culture today that we live in, where so many of our cultures say, oh, you have everything inside you that you need to solve whatever's wrong. Our culture tells us the problems we have are outside of us. We're constantly looking for outside blame for our problems, and we have the power within us to fix it is what our culture says. I mean, here's one example. All powers are with you, within you. You can do anything and everything. It's from some famous person. Here's another from the famous uh, you know, philosopher, Christina Aguilera. Uh, you need to find the power within to make things happen for yourself. When you realize this, you are unstoppable. There are so many sources spouting this slightly twisted, unbiblical message. Some who even quote the Bible talking about how we have the power. Now understand, there is profound truth in the fact that we are created in the image of God. God has created us as the pinnacle of his creation with great purpose for each and every one of our lives. But the key ingredient is not trusting in yourself. The key to being fully alive as people made in the image of God is to actually be united with the one uh, and one with the Spirit of God with us. The one in whose image we are made, we, need, we can only be completed in that image of God by being one with that divine being. The world may tell you if you have problems, dysfunction in your family, corruption in government, economic collapse, social prejudice, these are problems that are all on the outside and you have everything you can do to discover the solution to the problems. And that philosophy has been around for a very, very long time. And can I ask, how's it going? Seriously, how's it going? Not very well, right? I mean, I, I remember the 60s and the 70s. I'm old enough, sorry. I remember the, I remember the, 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 the stuff going on then, all the protests. That, that's nothing compared to what we're dealing now in terms of differences and disagreement and alienation of relationships and anger and protests and violence. How's it going? The Bible says the opposite. The problems in the world are because of a problem within each and every one of us, sin. Our hope, your hope, is found in God, who has the power to come into your life and change you. God brings an outside power himself to restore you on the inside. The Bible tells us the one main purpose of the Holy Spirit is to make real in our hearts the truths of who we really are. Romans says it this way, the Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. 
Galatians says it this way. Because you are his sons and daughters, God sent the spirit of of his son into our hearts, the spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. Thomas Goodwin, a 17th century British Puritan, tells a story that may help us understand the Holy Spirit a little better. He says, one day he was out watching a father and a son walk together in the street. And, and at one point, the father scoops up the son into his arms and gives him a great big old hug. And the little boy puts his arms around him and gives his hug, father a hug around the neck. And they tell each other they love him. And then the father puts the boy down and they continue walking on. And Goodwin asks this question. He says, was the little boy more of a son in his father's arms than he was walking on the street? And of course, we know the answer is no. Legally, this boy is as much the father's son on the street. And yet, yet, experientially, the son experiences his sonship more deeply being in his father's arms. That's one of the major things that the Holy Spirit does for all of us. He deepens our experiential connecting and understanding of our relationship with the Father. We come to know more fully how much God loves us and how God delights in us. Question, do you believe that God delights in you? Do you believe that? It's true, but do you believe it? He has gone to ultimate depths to save us. He will never let us go. He will never lose us. He will always hold on to us. Why would we ever worry about money or why would we care if we are rejected if we experience that kind of love? I mean, from this power and truth now living inside of us through the Holy Spirit, we can make changes to go from who we are to who we really want to be and who God created us to be. But let, let's go a little deeper. Let's, let's look a little more at what's happening. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now they were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. When they heard the sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each one heard their own language being spoken. Utterly amazed, they asked, aren't all these people speaking Galileans? Then how is it that each of us hears them in our native language? Parthenians, Medes, and Elamites, and residents of Mesopotamia, and Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, and Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, and parts of the Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs. We hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. Amazed and perplexed, they asked one another, What does this mean? I think that's a good question, right? Now, it actually appears that the tongues that happened the day of Pentecost are not necessarily like the tongues being referred to in other parts of the Bible. In 1 Corinthians 12, Paul is talking about the divine gifts the Holy Spirit gives us, and we pick it up in the middle of what Paul says. He says, to another, speaking in different kinds of tongues, and still to another, interpretation of tongues. All these, and for context, Paul listed a whole bunch of other gifts as well, All these are the work of the one and the same Spirit, and he distributes them to each one just as he determines. In the very next verses, Paul talks about tongue speaking. When he does, he says, Now if you pray in tongues in a worship service, nobody can understand you. So you need to have someone interpret. So notice something here. Paul is assuming that if you're praying in tongues in this context, people don't understand you. But the tongues on the day of Pentecost everybody understood in their own language. 
If you really want to understand what happened here at Pentecost, we actually have to go all the way back to Genesis 11 where people tried to build a tower they called the Tower of Babel. They wanted to defy God and believe they could reach God by their own efforts and build a name for themselves, and they wanted to become like God. And God then chooses to confuse their languages so they can't communicate with one another and finish the tower by confusing their languages God creates multiple languages and it led to humanity dispersing throughout the world and creating different cultures. So fast forward to Pentecost Day again. All the followers of Jesus are speaking in tongues, speaking in these different languages, and everyone is hearing the gospel in their own language. The disciples are speaking in languages they didn't know. The curse of Babel is being reversed. Luke is careful to show many different countries and languages represented in Jerusalem. The Jews came from all over the world for this feast, and most of them, Hebrew was not their first language. When the gospel, the good news of Jesus, was first spoken by Jesus' followers after the resurrection, it was preached in every language at once. What's the significance of that? It's this. Probably more than this, but at least this. God made sure there was no language or culture elevated higher in the Christian faith. There's no language or culture that one can say is the original Christian culture and language. All cultures, all races are equal. God intends for the divisions and barriers between cultures and races to be healed under the power of the Holy Spirit. Christianity quickly became then and is still today the most culturally diverse religion in the world. Why? Because there is no one language and no one culture that is the right culture. Christianity comes into every culture and renews every culture and at the same time honors those cultures. If you are African, Middle Eastern, Chinese, American, whatever... The gospel certainly should cause all of us to relook at our culture. A Christian perspective will challenge imbalances and sin in every culture. But if you're African or Chinese or whatever you are, you are an African Christian or a Chinese Christian, and diversity is not only blessed and allowed, it is beautiful to God. We see, actually, secularism tries to change a person, and secularism is far less culturally diverse than Christianity. I love an illustration Tim Keller gives. He has a friend who's an African, and he said, for this man, the core of being an African is you believe in a world that is spiritually alive. You believe there are good and evil spirits everywhere. Yet if you go to Harvard or Yale and get a good Western secular education, they're going to say they celebrate cultural diversity, but what that means is they'll celebrate the way you want to dress, and they might celebrate your music, but they will say that there are no miracles, no evil spirits. In their mind, there is only naturalistic scientific explanations for everything, and they're going to flatten and destroy your African culture. And yet true Christianity won't do that. Christianity helped Africans become renewed Africans. And when we do missions well, we don't make other people into Europeans or Americans or whatever category we are. We don't make them into us. We make them into followers of Jesus who can renew them in who they are. 
See, Christianity accepts the African reality that there is a spirit world, but it removes and challenges and renews the tendency towards superstition and violence that goes along in those cultures with that belief. Because Jesus is the victor over all spirits through love. Christianity doesn't steamroll all the different cultures. It loves, honors, and renews them. For example, just think about cultures for a minute. Every culture is different. They have different levels of emotional expressiveness, different ways of making decisions, different beliefs about the values of individuals or groups or punctuality or how you confront and so many, so many other ways. I think it's really helpful for us to really wrestle with and realize that our Western particular kind of Christianity is affected by our culture. And that can be okay. Again, God can celebrate our culture, but he's also going to renew our culture where it's sinful and where it's not good. The giving of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost shows us Jesus' design is to bring all races and cultures together in loving harmony under his leadership. Now, some observers on the first day of Pentecost about, were, had opinions about what they saw. Some of them said, Luke tells us, somehow or made fun of them and said, they have had too much wine. Paul tells us later, he says, do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. So being filled with the Spirit can be similar to looking drunk at times. The reason some may have thought these believers at Pentecost were drunk is that they were without inhibition in their joy. They seemed to have no fear. They were happy. They were not afraid of anything. Alcohol can take away inhibition, but it's different than that. Remember, back to the Son and the Father, being filled with the Spirit was, was like feeling the Father's arms around you, knowing you are more deeply loved than you could ever imagine and safe than you could ever imagine. Alcohol makes you less aware of reality, and it's a depressant. The Holy Spirit brings life and makes you more aware of what is really true and really life. Being filled with the Holy Spirit allows you to let others' opinions have less sway, and all the things that concern you when you're in your Father's arms just become smaller, don't they, in His presence. In summary... We're reminded that we can't make the changes in our lives in our own power. We need, it's essential, that we learn to live in the power and presence of the Holy Spirit, who is the only one who can step into those gaps between who we are and who we want to be. It's the power of the Holy Spirit that helps us be resilient. It's not something we do in ourselves. It's a drink of His strength that we get to take in to help us recalibrate, to be freshly filled by returning to an increased awareness and a dependency and a rest in the power of the Holy Spirit. So how can we walk this out today? Well, one way would be for us to maybe sharpen or begin practicing our practice of the daily examine. It's a spiritual habit. Some of you may be familiar with it. It's a spiritual practice that helps us see how God shows up in our days. It takes practice, doesn't it, to become aware of God's presence in our lives? We can so easily miss it. Unless we practice, unless we're conscious, we will not become aware of the Holy Spirit. The examine is often done at the end of the day. You can ask God, basically it consists of two questions. You ask, when did I have the deepest connection with you, God, or with others or myself today? 
And when did I have the least sense of connection today? It's just kind of looking back on your day, looking for God and where he was. For some, it may be easier to see God's presence by asking those same questions this way. What was the most life-giving part of my day? And what was the most life-thwarting part of my day? And this is something you can practice with your kids too. At the table or at bedtime, you can teach your kids the examine by playing I Spy God, inviting them to tell you where they have spied God in their day. Maybe it was someone being nice or someone at the playground or a sunny day to play soccer. They felt good and they felt God's pleasure or a sense of God seeing him in a cloud or a butterfly or a sense that God, maybe even a feeling that God spoke to them or gave them wisdom throughout the day that they were looking for. They didn't know where it was going to come from and it came. For some of you, maybe another way to apply today's message might be for you to take the image of the father and the son where the father picks the son up and holds him and hugs him and just sit with that image, pondering God hugging you that way. See, the Holy Spirit, his desired purpose, his stated purpose is to take the truths of how much God loves you, the never-ending love of God, and make it more real to you. So let's just pause for a moment and let's just all ask, Holy Spirit, what are you, what are you saying to me? Take a moment right where you're at. And ask him, how are you inviting me to know you and love you more and love others more through today's message? Lord, I'm just so grateful that we don't have to do this alone, that it's not up to us and our strength and our willpower, but that you yourself come to us. You fill us when we choose to follow you with your spirit. And when we ask you to fill us again, you fill us again. When we feel empty, we can come to you and we can say, Father, come. Holy Spirit, come. We hope you encountered the love of Jesus in this message. If you'd like to be a part of the ministry God is doing through Quest, whether in person or online, go to questvineyard.org for more information. If you want to worship God by supporting Quest financially, go to questvineyard.org slash give. May God bless you this week as you partner with God to change the world one friendship at a time.